0: Place in Second Timothy chapter three. So it's always good to be reminded of God's faithfulness and His goodness to us, and all that we have in Jesus. Hopefully, that's what we're reminded with every Sunday as we gather together and, and fellowship, and encourage one another, and sing uh, songs that remind us of the rich theology that we find in the Scripture and remind us of our salvation and. As we open God's word and allow Him to speak to us, He reminds us that He is faithful, that He is good, and that He is fighting for us. Speaking of fighting on behalf of someone else, uh, what's your favorite superhero? You might have a favorite superhero, Iron Man. Okay, all right, Captain America. James Taylor. Appreciate that. I don't know why you're kissing up, Nick, but uh, <laughs> did you do something? No. <laughs> We all have probably a favorite superhero. Maybe it's Superman or you know one of those type characters. But we all, I think, have a superhero—someone that we love, someone that we respect, someone that we look up to. And and uh, I think one of the things that that leads us to have that sort of uh, character in our life—a favorite superhero—is that is that we see something in that person that resonates with us. And so as a result of it resonating with us, we begin to, to mimic that, to emulate that into our own lives. If you're a child, I remember doing this as a, as a young boy, and I'm sure boys uh, today in our church are doing this. Maybe young men are doing this as well. But you, you watch your favorite superhero on the television or the movie, and, and what you do is you go and you begin to emulate that. You begin to to put that into your own life. And so little boys will dress up in the costume. They'll wear the cape. They'll put the mask on. And they will act like Superman or Batman or whoever it may be. I remember in the early 80s. Way back when, when Karate Kid first came out, I remember watching that movie. And, you know, Karate Kid's not really a hero, but the story is a pretty pretty good, solid story. And so I remember for days, if not weeks, walking around my house and doing what I did and doing this pose right here. And acting like I'm going to kick somebody's jaw off in defense of someone else. We begin to mimic and emulate those actions in our own lives. Little girls will dress up like their favorite princess or their favorite heroine, and elementary kids will strive to emulate their favorite athlete or singer, someone that they're looking up to. Teenagers will follow the style and the interests of people they admire in pop culture, and and even us adults will do this as well. We'll begin to look at and take notice of the lifestyle, the language, and even the actions of the people that we respect and look up to. And so what is it about a hero that makes a person attractive? I think it's what I said earlier. We see characteristics that resonate with us. We we see an example of what should be and how we should live our own lives. And we discover that these character traits really begin to rub off on us. We find something that we can look up to. We look at Superman and we see his strength. We look at Cinderella for maybe young girls and you see beauty and kindness. You look at the athlete and you see discipline and determination. I remember as an athlete in high school and junior high, uh, I would pick the number that I wore based upon the, the athlete and the pros that I looked up to. I wanted to emulate those type of receivers and those type of basketball players. and I was hoping that it would rub off of me and I too would be able to make my way to the pros. But as you can see, that didn't happen. Too short, too small, too slow. In the artists, we see creativity. Even in adulthood, though, that married couple that's raised a successful family, they've stayed together through thick and through thin, through good times and bad times. What we see in their lives, in their marriage, in their example, is love and grace and commitment. And we see a powerful example of what we can be and what we should be. Now, we need more than an example in our lives. We need proclamation. We need proclamation alongside an example, and an example alongside of proclamation. We need the spoken word that's followed by the example of how to live out that spoken word. And what we find in Jesus is the combination of both perfectly presented. Jesus is the greatest example of both proclamation and example. His teaching explained his life, and his life exemplified... His teaching. He told us how we should live, and then he lived it out in his own life. We find the greatest of superheroes. We find in this greatest of superheroes the primacy of living examples, the the, the greatest example of what we should be. So because of this important, it's necessary for us as believers to know whom they should follow and whom they should emulate, who we should emulate in our own lives. Because think about this, there are good examples and there are bad examples. If you don't believe that, turn your television set on, go watch or or go listen to some sort of teaching on something, open up the newspaper if we still have those today, and you will see good examples and bad examples everywhere. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're going to be this morning and, and next week, Lord willing, in the first 13 verses, we are presented with both extremes, the good and the bad. Paul begins here in the first nine verses rattling off a list of 19, at least 19 different sins uh, 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 in in an attempt to share with us a bad example. He's going to take us to the moral sewer, if you will. He's rattling off these expressions of sin that are among the godless people in his day in this church in Ephesus shares these 19 sins just in the first uh, few verses of this chapter and then in verse 5 he describes the emptiness of godless religion something that we also experience today and then in s- verses 6 through 9 he discusses discusses the corrupt nature that these false teachers that we've been talking about to the links that they will go to make disciples that will follow their teaching Paul's command then to Timothy was to avoid such people, to have nothing to do with these who would claim to be godly, and yet their lifestyle looked nothing like that. And in contrast, something we will look at, Lord willing, next week, Paul's going to present himself as an example of someone to follow and someone to emulate in their Christian walk. And so we see here a bad example in the first nine verses. Edmund Burke, that Irish statesman, once said, example is the school of mankind. They will learn it no other. And so the charge here to Timothy throughout this letter has been, as you remember in chapter 1, guard the good deposit. Take care of the gospel message. Reject false teaching. Have nothing to do with false teaching. Bring correction there and guard the gospel. Timothy then was to stand for the truth. He was to preach the gospels, continue to contend for the saints. He was to model godliness in his life. All this was because Paul understood that people are easily influenced. People are easily swayed. And so they need a good model to follow. They need something to come alongside the teaching and say, this is exactly how the teaching that we've been sharing with you is to flesh itself out in our lives and in your life. Paul understood that people are easily swayed. He's told the Corinthians, bad company ruins or corrupts good morals. And I think it's safe to say that the opposite is also true. Good company enhances good morals. You hang around bad people and people who have no morals and people who have no love for Jesus, what's going to happen to you? You're going to begin to emulate that in your life. Not because you've decided to do that, but you simply be if you will, osmosis, you will begin to drift into their pattern of life. But you hang around people who love Jesus and love God's word and want to flesh that out in their life, and it will draw you and lead you to greater and more deep faithfulness in your Christian walk. Amen? That's why as parents we want to make sure that we know who our children are. Spending time with. We want to make sure that we know who their friends are. We want to make sure what they're watching on TV and looking at on the internet, what they're doing on their phones. We want to make sure those influences in their life are good and healthy and moral influences because they can easily be drawn into dangerous places. As we read throughout the New Testament, what we see in the life of the church at Ephesus is a drift. We see a drift. You go to the letter that Paul wrote to the church there at Ephesus. We know this as the letter of the Ephesians. And so we see there in chapter 1 where where Paul praised them for their strong start. He said in chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because they had believed the gospel, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This was a solid church, a biblical church, a Christ-honoring church. Then we move to these two letters, First and Second Timothy, where Timothy's now the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And we see that false teachers have begun to infiltrate the church, begin to sway people toward other teachings and toward other lifestyles. He rebuked two men in the first letter. He's rebuked two men in this letter so far. And so we see this shift beginning to take place amongst God's people in Ephesus years later. When the Lord Jesus was given his revelation or the revelation to John there in Revelation chapter 2. And he speaks to the seven churches. The first church he speaks to is the church of Ephesus. And he says there that you've done great things. There's a lot of good things about your your faith and your practice. There's a lot of good things about your, your walk with the Lord Jesus. But I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. What we see as we read these uh, books out of the New Testament, we see that the church here is drifting. How could a church with such a strong, bold, and vibrant faith lose their love for Jesus? The Apostle Paul answers it by telling us that it came from within them rather than from without them. It wasn't outside the church where this drift began to take place. It came from inside the church. It was a self-inflicted wound. See, an outside aggressor such as the Roman government or some sort of cultural influence wasn't what was swaying this church and leading this church and doing damage to this church. It was being damaged by internally embracing a different gospel, tweaking the word of God, uh, 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 marginalizing the word of God in their life. So the apostle here warns the church of this imminent danger. And it's a danger to them and it's a danger to us even today. Church history, if you were to go and just begin to search the, 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 the files of church history from, from Pentecost to today and all areas of life on all continents and all types of people. And this is what you would see. The only thing that can kill a church is self-inflicted wounds. You see, the enemy has done everything he could for 2,000 years, and he even was working long before that through the people of of Israel to try to kill God's plan for humanity and God's plan for redemption. He's always been working to put an end to it, and yet he's never been successful. And so no matter what comes against the church from outside, it can never ultimately destroy the church. But what can kill a church is when we inflict wounds upon ourselves. How do we do that? Exactly what the people here in Ephesus were beginning to do. Diminishing the authority of the word of God. Questioning the veracity of the word of God. Theological and moral rot is what kills a church. And so I want us to take a look this morning as quickly as we can to look at some of these self-inflicted wounds that Paul mentions here to the church In Ephesus to Timothy. This is probably not an exhaustive list, but this is a list that Paul presents to Timothy as a warning to the church that he is pastoring. So let's begin reading verse 1, chapter 3, through verse 9. Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not living good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Kind of sounds like American culture today, doesn't it? It sounds like the American church. Today. I I told you several weeks ago the reason our culture is moving as fastly and as destructively as it is is because the church is leading the charge there. We are losing our convictions, we're losing our biblical positions, therefore, our culture is suffering. Verse 5: having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, he says. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Parenthetically, who are these two men, Janus and Jambres? Because... Uh, I'm not going to deal with that particular portion of this text, uh, at least. I don't plan to extensively, but let's just, I just want to explain who they are. Uh, legend has it that these are the two men. If you remember when Moses was standing before Pharaoh for the very first time, when he was told to go and, and tell Pharaoh to, to let my people go, he goes in, he stands before Pharaoh and he has the staff in his hand, and the Lord had told him to put it down and it would become a snake, right? So legend has it, and you can read it in the Targum and some other extra-biblical writings, that the two men, the two magicians for Pharaoh that put their staffs down that became snakes, these are those two men. And so that's just who they were. They opposed the truth of God. They opposed God himself, and they were made to be nothing more than magicians. They were not the power of God. Moses had the power of God because he was a child of God. All right. All right. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, what we see here is Paul calling Timothy, calling the church to be aware of some self-inflicted wounds. I want to speak to that subject this morning. The passage opens here in verse 1 by saying, understand this, that in the last days there will become, or there will come, times of difficulty. Paul here, when he makes this statement, is speaking both futuristically as well as he's speaking about the present See, when you look at the kingdom of God, and Paul's speaking to the church, he's speaking to the kingdom of God. When we look at the kingdom of God, God, there is a futuristic and already not yet thing. There's a future and a present concept or connotation to the kingdom. In other words, the promises and blessings of the kingdom are true today, yet they won't fully be realized until Jesus returns again. And so the same is true of the tribulations of the church. The last days that he speaks of here in verse 1 refers not only to to the days immediately preceding the second coming of Christ, but they also refer to today. The fact that ever since Pentecost, when the church was enacted, they immediately began to experience persecution. They immediately began to live in the last days. And the last days come with difficulty. So Paul here was not telling Timothy about something that would eventually happen in the future. He's also speaking of something that was happening in the present. Now, you asked me, Pastor, how do you know this? Well, if you look at it grammatically, he begins and he ends, verses 1 and verse 9, speaking in the future tense, but in between he's speaking with the present tense. He's saying there will be difficult days, but right now, here's what you're experiencing. People are brutal and reckless and conceited and arrogant and proud and, and disobedient to parents. These are things that are happening, and it's going to continue to happen and continue to get worse and worse and worse. So these self-inflicted wounds were threatening the Ephesian church. And today what we see are the same self-inflicting wounds threatening today's church. So what are these wounds? Let me give you three wounds that destroy. I'm going to take these 19 different sins mentioned in verses 2 through 4, and I'm going to combine them into three um, categories of sins in the first point, and then we're going to look at a couple other things in verse 5 and following. Three wounds that destroy. Sin number one, or wound number one, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is a wound that will destroy the believer and a wound that will destroy the church. Going back to what I mentioned earlier, when Jesus speaks to John in the Revelation, he said to the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. When he rebuked the church at Ephesus, that they had that they were going to lose their first love, what he's basically saying that is what we see here in 1 Timothy is this, this is already taking place. That what was going to be true decades later when John received this lef- revelation that the Ephesian believers would have left their first love, it's already beginning in the church as Timothy is pastoring it because they are losing their affection for Jesus. They're losing their affection for the Word of God. Why? Because they're listening to the wrong voices. Were people within the Ephesian church who had left this love for God, they left this word love for the Word of God, they had become lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's what Paul says here. They are lovers of self, verse 2. Their lives were marked by self centeredness rather than God centeredness. There's a big difference between being self-centered and God-centered. What's, what's the difference? One is that I am the, if I'm self-centered, that means I am the center of my own universe, right? I'm the center of my life. Everything revolves around me. That's what self-centeredness is. It means you've got to serve me, you've got to bless me, you've got to be there for me. It's all about me, me, me. But when God is at the center of my life, I'm not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe, and I am not revolve, having people revolve around me. I am revolving my life and my ministry and my family and everything about my life around the Lord. I am there to serve, to honor, and to glorify God rather than to be served and to be honored and to be glorified. We look at the Word of God, what we see about all of us is that we all are by nature worshipers. We will worship something or we will worship someone and the spillover of that supreme love will play itself out in how we live and what we do. It will characterize Who we are, and so what we see here is this self-centeredness spills over into our into the lives of these people, and it shows itself in three ways. First of all, it shows itself in narcissism, the love of self. That's what Paul says here. They are lovers of self. This characteristic is depicted as those who are some of the characteristics he mentioned. They're proud, they're arrogant, they're ungrateful, they're hostile. In other words, if you're not serving me and meeting my needs and doing what I want you to do, then I'm going to be hostile towards you and force you to do what you don't want to do so that I can benefit from it. That was characteristic of the people, some of the people there in the church In Ephesus, everything in their lives was driven by this motivation. And it's true today. When we become narcissistic, everything in our lives is driven by this love of self. You say, is it wrong to love yourself? No. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're to love others as we love ourselves. But keep in mind what he's saying. It's not that you're loving yourself supremely, it's that you're bringing God into the picture and he's the focus and others are right alongside you as you love the Lord, you love others just as you love yourself. The love of self is actually healthy. It's unhealthy when it's the only love that you have. So narcissism was a characteristic of this self-centeredness. Secondly, we see materialism was a characteristic. The love of money. He says they were lovers of self and lovers of of money, verse 2. The love of money will drive people toward, again, more characteristics, abuse, disobedience, ungratefulness, unholiness, and a lack of self-control. That's what materialism, the love of money, does in a person's life. Materialism is a serious danger in the American church today. You said, I don't know if I agree with that. It may be dangerous in some places, but it's not dangerous here. It may be dangerous in the places where they're really wealthy, but it's not dangerous here where we're not as wealthy. But I want you to understand something about the love of money. I mentioned it in our small group last week because the lesson dealt with. The, 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 the love of money, or the love of wealth is a root to all kinds of evil. And I made this statement in our small group. Now, I'm not even the teacher. I just kind of took over the class, which happens from time to time. Here's what I've observed in humanity and just the, 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 the way we operate is that a person who is extremely wealthy and a person who is poor can both love money just as much regardless of how much they have. The one who doesn't have is resentful of those who have it. The one who has it wants more because it becomes a greedy thing. The, the same is true for those who don't have the love of money. You can be wealthy and you could be poor. It doesn't matter. What, what, it, what it comes down to is what is the center of your life? Is it you or is it God? If God's the center of your life, money won't be the center of your world. If, if, if you're the center of your life, more than likely material things will become the center of your world because you are at the center of your world. So materialism, materialism leads to a dangerous place for us. I mean, here in America, in, in, no matter where you're at, if you're on the homeless areas in some of the cities around our country, by the world's standards, you are wealthy. I say, I don't know if I agree with that. Come overseas with me sometime. I'd love to take you. We'll go to some third world countries. I'll show you some places where you think or they think they're affluent, but by the standard of living, they don't even compare to what our poor people have in America. We are affluent, we are wealthy, and our affluence easily leads to our self-sufficiency as a nation, as a people. It also leads to a love of things and a sense of entitlement. And we are, we are drowning in entitlement in our culture today. We're drowning in entitlement in the culture of the church today. Vance Havner once said this, a great Southern Baptist pastor from the 20th century. He said, the difference between Patrick Henry, so bringing it home to Virginia. The difference between Patrick Henry and the average American today is that Patrick Henry said, give me life or give me death, and the average American today just says, give me. Right? That's where we're at. That's where we're at in the church. Here, here's what happens in the culture of the church today. We, we, we're always searching for something new. We're always searching for something that's going to meet our needs or, 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 or scratch us where we're itching. And so we don't get that met in the church. We'll pick up our lives and we'll move somewhere else. It doesn't matter if the church is preaching the word of God, standing on the gospel of Christ, winning people to the Lord. What we're there for is we want our world to be uh, to be the central thing, our affections to be, to be massaged. We want our itches to be scratched scratch because it's all about me it's a dangerous place to be material things though I want you to know are not evil it's not evil to possess things there's no inherent sin if you got a million dollars in the bank or you got a 40 million dollar yacht sitting down at the bay if you got one of those call me I'll spend some time with you on it (laughs) if you got a private jet I'd love to be your friend just from a convenience standpoint. it's nothing wrong with having those things. Why, would we, we, why should we or why would we ever resent those who have things? Or, or the flip side, why would we look down on some, someone who doesn't have anything? It's up to God what he desires and plans to give us in our life. Material things are amoral. They're not either good or bad. It's how we use them. It's how we view them that makes them good or evil. Jay Kessler said, things are to be used and God is to be loved. We get into trouble when we begin to use God and love things. It was W.L. Hudson who said and reminded the church that the love of wealth makes bitter men, the love of God, better men. And so materialism was a self-inflicted wound that was damaging the health and the integrity of the Ephesian church. And today it is still a self-inflicting wound that's damaging the church. A third characteristic of this self-centeredness, and man, I've got to hurry, hedonism. The love of pleasure. This characteristic is portrayed through the examples of unholiness and the lack of self control and recklessness. It is living for an experience, listen, devoid of God. It's living for that feeling, it's living for that moment with no concept of God, no desire for God. Whatever the, may, the experience may be. Sometimes it's religious. And sometimes you want to come to church because you feel a certain way. You, you experience something. I, I think I told you before that when I was a teenager, I remember when the choir in my home church, a big church, when they would come in, they would play a certain song, and it would give me little goosebumps on my arms, and I felt like I was in church, whatever that means. I began to long the experience rather than longing for the God behind the experience. So the main issue here is that man was created for more than a temporal passing experience. God, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, has placed eternity within each and every one of our hearts. And so we long for more than this world has to offer. We long for more than this world can satisfy us with. That's why Solomon, who many believe wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, when he had experienced everything there was to experience, just said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does he mean by that? Everything in life is vanity? No. Everything without God at the center is vanity. Sex won't fill you up. Money won't fill you up. Things won't fill you up. Experiences won't fill you up. The only thing that feels and satisfies is the God who created you. I still always think of the song that Audio Adrenaline put out Man, the 80s or 90s, if you remember who they are, the the song's title was A God-Shaped Hole. Every time I hear that song, and I listen to Audio Adrenaline still when I'm working out, I'll put it on Pandora and and rock out to those old 90s songs when I was in high school and listen to those uh, quirky Christian songs from back then. But every time I hear that song, it just reminds me, and I was created for more than this world has to offer. I've got a hole in my life that the only thing that can plug it is God himself. I can't shove enough of other stuff in there to feel and to satisfy the deep longings of my heart. Self-centeredness endangered the church. Secondly, we see here in verse 5, simulated spirituality. Simulated spirituality. Paul says that they were um, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So the false teachers and the members who had been allowed to remain in the church Looked and sounded spiritual. Those who are now proclaiming and, and holding to a different doctrine, they looked and sounded spiritual. And we can do that, right? You spend time, long enough time in the church, you begin to learn the language, you begin to learn the, the actions, and, and you begin to have the, the ability to do the talk. And so people can look and say, you know, they're pretty spiritual. They're here, they, they, they know the right things to say. But we can't look on the heart. Only God can do that. We can simulate spirituality without it being authentic. So these people possessed external practices that gave the appearance of godliness, but their spirituality was not validated by their lifestyle. They were morally corrupt. Their spirituality was nothing more than a show. It was something they were putting on. And consequently, the power of God was absent from them. They preached a, a gospel devoid of the cross of Christ, which was no gospel at all. They refused to personally believe on the truth of the gospel. And so in doing, they failed to embrace the power of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here, and so when we think about in simulated spirituality, the person engaged in that is satisfied with the forms of worship rather than the true object of worship. Again, it's the idea of you're coming to church just to go home. You're coming to church to experience something, but you're not coming to church gathering God, with God's people to experience God Himself. It's religious rote and routine without authenticity. When a church becomes satisfied with religious motions over and above true worship, it's no longer possessing and enjoying the power of God. A third self-inflicting wound is what I'm calling seizing something new. Verses 6-9. through I'm going to try to paraphrase this for us. We sing about Jesus being the Lion of Judah. As we were singing that song, I was thinking about the verse that I'm going to allude to here in just a moment. Jesus is referred to as a lion, but you know who else in the Bible is referred to as a lion? The devil, 1 Peter 5.8. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the reality of where we live, in a sinful world. And so Paul here is warning Timothy of the danger lurking behind some of those who claim to be teachers of the truth. Certain individuals were trying to win converts to their wicked religion is what he's presenting here. They did this in verse 6 by creeping into homes. They were secretive. They were sneaky. They were doing things just like the enemy does them. They did evil things behind closed doors, not out in the open where everyone could see goal was to capture their prey. It was not to come alongside and help and to train and to better the person's life. Their goal was to ensnare. It was to imprison. It was to enslave. And to do this, they deployed within the church that was meeting in houses. I want you to know that we have an enemy, and his name is Satan, and he's working every single day to destroy your life, your family, your home, and our church. If you don't believe that, you need to open your eyes and see what he's doing. I would encourage you to do this. Obviously, read the Word of God. That teaches us everything we need to know. But C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. Kind of just a fictional idea of what may be happening behind the scenes. And then Randy Alcorn kind of picked up that same thought, and he wrote a couple books along the same line. Uh, One of them is called Lord Falcon's Letters. And the concept is this. You've got a hierarchy of demons. You've got the, the, the boss demon, Training and, 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 and encouraging his, his um, I wouldn't say younger demons because I guess they're the same age, but the lesser ranking demons on what they should do and how they should go about deceiving people. And when you read those types of books, C.S. Lewis's or Randy Alcorn's books, what you'll begin to understand is that behind the scene, behind the spiritual veil that we all live behind, there's things happening that would blow our minds if we actually knew. That the enemy is working hard against you, your family, and our church. And here he's working in the church at Ephesus. Notice the victims and who they were in this evil scheme. Paul describes them as weak women. Uh, weak women who were burdened with sins. They were deceived by passions. They were chasing every new teaching, thus the idea of seizing something new. The description weak women literally means uh, little women. It's purposely derisive. This diminutive is not intended for women in general, but he's describing a situation in particular in this church and suggesting that the immature, childish behavior of these women was causing them to be led astray. And so here's the truth. It can be men or women. It doesn't matter. It's when you're not grounded in Scripture so when you're not walking with Jesus, and I, I, I believe as you read this, you see that these women aren't even in the faith. They are being deluded, chasing every new thing, but never coming to a full understanding of the gospel in their own lives. He speaks of the full knowledge of the truth, right? This, this phrase, the knowledge of truth, is used several times in these pastoral epistles. It's always in reference to faith and salvation, repentance, faith, and salvation. So these women had not yet come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and yet they're religious, they're in the church, they're amongst Christian people, they're listening to the Word of God being taught and yet missing the point of the Word of God. In essence, what we see here is sin making these women dumb. Sin makes you dumb. Do you know that? Sin will make you Dumb. And I don't have time to, to uh, expound this. But I, I really believe if, if, uh, if we were able to get in a time machine, my daughters were messing with me on the way to the church this morning. They asked, I don't know how we got on the conversation, but can you do anything? I was like, I think I can do anything naturally. I was kind of just being an egotistical dad at the moment. I can do anything. And so I think Hannah asked me, Dad, could you go back in time? I can't go back in time. I can only do what natural laws will allow me to do. Well, can you walk on clouds? Again, I can't do everything because only what natural law will allow me to do. I can't walk on clouds. they are only gas. I was trying to explain all that. This was all down at the red light down here at Red Lane. <laughs> Happened in like two minutes. And so um, if, you, if we were to get in a time machine and go back to the Garden of Eden, we're able to just kind of sit and watch Adam. I believe we would see in Adam and Eve something that would just blow our minds as compared to where we are today. Because sin, when it was introduced into the concept of humanity and into this world, it made us dumb. I think you can see that progressively as you walk through Scripture because they were doing some amazing things in the early chapters of Genesis. And as sin continued to be more and more pervasive in culture, humanity got dumber and dumber and dumber. What You say, how do you know that? Well, they built an ark in chapter 6, right, in the midst of sinfulness and wickedness. Chapter uh, 9 or 10, I forget where the Tower of Babel is, chapter 11, somewhere in that neighborhood. You've got them building this incredible monstrosity to the heavens to basically uh, become gods like themselves. And so what you see after that is we just become more and more dumb, Sin will make you dumb. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different roles, which is nothing more than insanity. And so that's what these women are doing. Their guilt, their desires resulted in their religious dabbling, always learning, always seeking something new, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We might describe these women as those who signed up for every new Bible study at church. They were taking every new class at the community Bible study. They were going and spending time with friends who were doing their own Bible study in their homes. They're always around it. They're always listening. They're always seeking something new. They want five tips to whatever. They want to to, to figure out the numerical code of prophecy. They're going after all of these things, chasing these new topics, new ideas, and yet never coming to the simple gospel truth that you are a sinner separated by God. God loves you and has done everything to be in relationship with you. They disregarded that chasing everything that was new they preferred to feel smart and free even as they became more entrenched in foolishness and enslavement today we're engaged in a truth war every church is There's a genuine understanding of the truth that's available to all. And at the same time, there are people who are actively resisting that truth, teaching a false gospel. And people have always been prone to drift to every wind of doctrine, especially things that are new. So here's a statement that I learned years ago. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Here is the historic word of God. I don't need a new revelation. I don't need Pope so-and-so, I don't need brother so-and-so, I don't need elder so-and-so, I don't need anybody to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, because we believe the canon of Scripture is closed, God has spoken, revelation is over, here it is, and so it's not a new thing, but it's not an out-of-date thing either. The Word of God is as relevant today as when the voice of God uttered it thousands of years ago. I was, thank you, I was going to tell you that was a really good place to say Amen. Sometimes you need to be prompted. I miss Fred. Some of you don't know who Fred was. But man, that brother, when I first came for the first couple of years, would sit right there and he was a good guy. The gospel is all we need. All right. Let's do three disciplines that build real quickly. And these will be quick. Those are the wounds, the self-inflicted wounds that we have and face in the church. Three disciplines that build. I've got a lot more to say. I've been struggling with this all week. Man, I've got a ton I really want to say and so little time to do it. But three disciplines that build. Number one, godliness. This is really going to be the opposite of what we saw in the wounds. So rather than self-centeredness, we need to, to, to practice. We need to put into discipline the concept, the idea of godliness. Narcissism and materialism and hedonism are temptations that we're going to face. We face every single day in our life. They're, not, they're nothing new. They were not new to the church they're not, they, I mean, they're not new to the, the people of God. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4 is presented with the three same temptations, narcissism, materialism, and hedonism. There in his 40 days of wilderness wandering. Our response, though, as believers, to self-centeredness should be to put and to keep God at the center of our lives. God-centeredness produces God-likeness or godliness. And so three things that your life should be marked by in godliness. Number one, humility. In contrast to narcissism, you will humbly put God and others before yourself. When godliness is the discipline of your life, when you're striving for that, when God's at the center of uni- your universe rather than you, rather than being narcissistic, serve me, make me happy, feed me, take care of me, worship me, it will be humility. I'm not the center of my world. God's the center of my world. I'm not the center of the universe. God's the center of the universe. I'm not as important as someone else. And so you're going to be humble and you're going to put God and others before yourself. It's living out the great commandment to love the Lord your God and to love others as yourself. Secondly, generosity is a mark. In contrast to materialism, you will now delight in giving rather than getting. I think one of the, the hallmarks of the Christian life, one of the great, the, the great characteristics of a person who's walking with Jesus and growing with Jesus is a growing generosity in their life. Rather than being a getter, you're a giver. What happens when we grow up, at least physiologically, as human beings. What, what are you doing as a baby? What do babies do when they come out of the womb? Give me, give me, give me. I need milk. I need changing. I mean, they, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. You're pulling your hair out. You're not getting any sleep. I mean, the baby is the center of the world, and I think they know it, wicked things. I mean, they're sinful. Let's just be honest. They're sinful. We know that Bible teaches it, and we—it's it's evident really quick. And then when they get a little older and they can talk and walk, what are they doing? They're fighting over stuff. Give me this. Give me that. I mean, you don't have to teach a kid to fight. You don't have to teach a kid to steal. It's all about gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give but when they grow up, when we grow up, what begins to change? Hopefully, we delight in giving. I, I delight in giving my kids rather than than giving me stuff. Right? It's changing. It changes the same in your Christian life. Rather than being a getter, you want to be a giver. Third mark is integrity. In contrast to hedonism, you now begin to delight in God rather than pleasure. You say, what a, how does integrity fit in that? Let me explain. When you look at the scriptures, you look at what God said about our creation, we see that we were created by God to be hedonists. To enjoy God. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, begins like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper expounds on this doctrine in his explanation of what he calls Christian hedonism. This is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, that of his glory, and our deepest desire, that of joy or the the desire to be happy, are one and the same. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God Himself is glorified by our being satisfied in Him. So, therefore, our pursuit of joy in Jesus is essential all of this. Christian hedonism claims that the Christian life should be the pursuit of maximum joy in God, joy both in quality as well as in quantity. This fullness of joy and joy forevermore talked about in Psalm 1611 are found only in the Lord. We were created to enjoy God, Colossians 1.16, I've been made by God and for God. Why was I made for God? To enjoy Him. Why was I made by God? To find my fulfillment and satisfaction and the the longing of the deep recesses of my heart. To find what they're looking for in God. When God is the center of our life, we will walk in that type of integrity. That He's the pleasure. I'm not drawn and, 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 and... satisfied but temporal things. No, the things that that satisfy me are eternal things. I think this is what Solomon is getting at when he's writing Ecclesiastes. He's saying, I've tried it all, and it left me wanting. I tried everything there was to try. I I had as much relationship with other women that that a man could possibly have. I had as much uh, uh, wealth that a person could possibly have. I had servants and, and property. I had everything this world has to offer. And I was still left longing for more. But when I found God, my soul was satisfied. That's what Solomon is driving home there in Ecclesiastes what he drives home in his proverbs and so godliness number two genuine spirituality as opposed to simulated spirituality Uh, here's the idea don't ever allow yourself to become satisfied with shadows and forms instead of the object and substance of worship i'm not talking just about sunday morning right worship is your life your life should be lived in worship not just when you go to worship right So don't allow yourself to go through religious motions either while failing to engage with the purpose of those religious motions. Don't come and just sing songs without engaging the heart of God. Otherwise, you're missing the whole point of what we're doing when we sing. It's to draw us into an understanding, a a grateful heart of love for Jesus. So don't come to church simply to go home. I've said that for years. I think one of the tragedies of many Christians, is that we gather on Sundays, we put our clothes on, we come, we shake hands, we drink coffee, we eat donuts, and can I get an amen for Dunkin' Donuts coming soon? I, I think what we're going to do, I, I've told our staff, like, we've got to get an account at Dunkin' Donuts, and that's got to be one of the things we're offering to our folks on Sunday morning. I think it'll help us worship better. I think it'll help us put on some pounds, but it'll help us worship better. But I believe one of the tragedies in our church, not, and, and our church in general, true of our church as well, because it's true of humanity, is that we get up, put our Sunday best on, or whatever we're wearing, and just parenthetically, it doesn't matter what you wear, right? Okay, just thought I'd say that this morning. I feel free to say whatever I want, but one of the tragedies is you come to church to just go home. You didn't come to church to meet with God. You didn't come to church to, with your heart open and, and ready for God to speak into you. You didn't come to church to bear your soul, and to, to find freedom from your sin. You just came to church to check it off your list. That happens all too often in the life of God's church. That's what's happening in some of the folks here in Ephesus. God calls us to genuine spirituality. The idea of possessing a vibrant and growing faith in the Lord. And this faith begins in repentance of sin, receiving forgiveness from Jesus. And it continues as you walk in sanctification, living out your faith. You see, this Christian life is not about religion. It's about relationship. And so we pursue godliness. We pursue genuine spirituality. And thirdly and lastly, we pursue the idea of grounding yourself in the gospel. Rather than being cared about by every new teaching, ground yourself in the historic faith that Paul or, or that Jude says is once for all delivered to the saints. And so read your Bible daily. Spend time in prayer daily. Set under the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word weekly or regularly and test everything over and against the clear teaching of scripture. If you hear something out there, you hear this new Bible study, a new preacher on the, on the radio or wherever it comes from, Test it to the word of God. When you come on Sundays and if what you're hearing from this platform doesn't line up with this book, then don't listen to it, don't apply it to your life because it's a false teaching, it's a false gospel. And if it's coming from me, I would encourage you to run me out on the nearest rail. That's what Paul would tell us to do. Grow in the gospel. Here's the beauty of of the gospel message. It's like a pool that is so shallow an infant can wade in it and yet so deep that you can get in the biggest submarine and never get to the depths and the bottom of it. That's the gospel message. Live in the gospel. Live the gospel. Resonate in the gospel. We need a hero, all of us, to inspire us, to encourage us, and to model how we should live. And so who are your heroes? Who are your heroes in life? Thankfully, we have many great hero, heroic figures to admire and to emulate in our history. But The greatest of them is Jesus. He was the one who not only modeled a great life, he sacrificed his for ours. And so this morning, as we think about self-inflicted wounds, you need to understand what the Bible has to say about our lives. The good news is that God loves you. God created you for himself. God desires to be in relationship with you. That's what we've been talking about. That's the good news of the Bible. The bad news is, is that we have all inflicted ourselves with a eternal wound. We have been born into sin, because of Adam's sin, and yet in our sin, in that nature of sin, we continue to inflict ourselves. We begin, we continue to to create more and more brokenness in our life, separated from God cut off from him having no hope in and of ourselves but here's the best news that the bible tells us in jesus in god the son we can be forgiven of all sins have all sin removed from us all because of what jesus did for us there on the cross he offered himself as a substitute he experienced the wrath of god the father all because of our sin to set us free and today if we will simply call out to him he will forgive us You may say, I'm a person, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I'm that religious person you were talking about, but I've never come to Christ. This morning, the best news for you is this. Jesus loves you, and Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with him. If you're a Christian, and you've been walking at a guilty distance, you've been inflicting yourself, even as a believer, with all kinds of sinful wounds, here's the good news for you. God loves you, and God, through Jesus, has done everything necessary for you to be forgiven of that sin, to walk in holiness all you need to do is confess that sin, receive forgiveness, and he will restore your life. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the best news of the Bible. This morning, where do you fall on that line? Where do you fall? Let's pray. Father. We thank